Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we watch horror films, but we also read horror books. This is Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're finding this episode through book Twitter, or if you're new to the show, welcome. On this podcast, we take a horror trope and explore it in depth through discussions with special guests. Currently, we're looking at all things teen horror, and previously we covered witches and female monsters and vampires, so there is a lot of good stuff over on the feed. Alongside that, occasionally on the podcast, I'll cover new films or series that I really want to talk about, and every so often I get to chat to the filmmakers who made them. You can find out more about what we do over at The Final Ghost UK on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find me tweeting at Anna B. Demented. On occasion on this podcast, I'm doing what I've called The Bloody Book Club. I'm going to be interviewing some of the women who are writing horror right now. This is very sporadic, very much based around availability and coming from a genuine love of horror fiction. Basically, I'm just greedy and when I love a horror book, I try to speak to its author. Last time I interviewed author Emily M. Danforth and this time extremely pleased to have had the chance to speak to Katrina Ward, the author of three exemplary horror novels, Raw Blood, Lil Eve and the latest absolutely sensational book, The Last House on Needless Street. If you don't trust me, then trust Stephen King himself who <laughs> recommended this book on his Twitter. And I couldn't let 2021 slip away without putting out my conversation with Katrina. I can't really tell you that much about the book. It's full of turns and unexpected reveals, and it genuinely plays around with even the most seasoned of horror readers. But just to tease you a little bit, in a boarded up house on a dead end street at the edge of the wild Washington woods live a family of three, including a teenage girl who isn't allowed outside, not after what happened last time. If you want to hear more about the book, there are no spoilers for most part of this interview. We do go into a bit more detail towards the end, but it is very, very clearly mentioned when we go into spoiler territory. Katrina and I talk about our mutual love of horror, about serial killers, how quickly this book came together for her, the importance of empathy in horror, and writing from the point of view of a cat. Whether you've read House on Needless Street already, or if you need some more convincing, please enjoy my conversation with author Katrina Ward. Thank you so much for giving up a little bit of your time and for coming onto the podcast to talk about, well, your work in general, but specifically about your latest novel, The House on Needless Street, which I have to say I enjoyed and devoured. I, I literally put aside all the work I had to do for two days until I finished it and would not take any calls, did not, could not go out, could not do anything except read that book. So uh, first of all, thank you for, for giving us that. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast and thank you so much for your kind words. I mean, it's, 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 it's so wonderful to hear that about something that came from your brain because it, it, it it's, you know how it is with books at first, after you finish them for a little while, it doesn't really seem possible that anyone else has read them because how can it, how can it go from in here to out there? It doesn't seem, doesn't seem logical. Um, so it's, it's really nice to hear that you, that you enjoyed it. 
um, and connected with it because it's a it's a weird one, isn't it? It's a weird. It's a weird, I wouldn't call it a soothing book. It's uh, it's weird in the best possible way because I find that as as horror fans, we're we're kind of the the most demanding and the most accepting of of fandoms where we will devour horror stories, but we also kind of want to be. We both want to outsmart the creator and want to be outsmarted. I think horror, exact, I think that's exactly right. I think horror fans are really literate and educated in their genre. I think that they know the rules and they know, um, they know the conventions and the tropes. It, I mean, as, as well as, as well as the writer does, really. And so it does become this kind of reciprocal, almost like a dance, really, because you're, you're, you're playing with expectations and, um, and, and, um, moving in a sort of knowing aware way around some known mechanisms and known tropes that operate in the genre. So I, th- I find it very rewarding. And I, I would also, I know, as we were saying, just before we started recording, horror people are the best people. They're the <laughs> kindest. No, they are. They're the kindest, most compassionate. And, mm-hmm. you know, also, as we were also saying beforehand, there, there, there may be a sort of preconception that people who write horror are, are less frightened and more inured to fear than uh than others i think it's the exact opposite i think horror horror writers and horror readers are very sensitive and frightened because the whole point is you can't be frightened by something if you're if you're kind of Im- immune and you can't write something frightening if you're immune because you you have to be frightened of it yourself to 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 write it i think um so it's it, uh, yeah i'm i'm very i think i feel, often feel very very lucky to write sort of in the center of this venn diagram um of like I don't even know, like what my crime thriller horror. I don't know, um, but it's it's. I, I feel very lucky for to, to have been part of that community, especially for my first two novels. You know, it's very supportive. And and on that note, actually, can you talk a little bit about your own personal relationship with horror? Yeah, I mean, I I, I never knew that I was going to set out to, to write to write horror. So I mean, I think I had very. When I was, when I was much younger, so we moved around a lot when I was, when I was, um, a child. Um, and every year we came back to this house, um, on Dartmoor. And I don't know if you've been to Dartmoor. It's so beautiful. It's very bleak, very romantic. It's, it, it's a moor. It's not, it's like all the, the sweeping, panning landscapes you've seen when someone does a moor on film and wild ponies. It's very beautiful, immense skylines. And, um. Sounds, sounds like Gothic novel central. It is. <laughs> and <laughs> we, we used to stay in this, we had, we stayed in this cottage every summer. So for me, this is very exotic, right? Because I grew up in like Madagascar, Kenya, Yemen, Morocco. So to go somewhere with Heather, and 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 rain and mist was incredible um but when i was about 13 i started having this thing happen when i went to sleep in my room which is that i would wake up with a hand in the small of my back shoving me very very firmly out of bed and i'd like so so hard that i'd fall on the floor and you know that feeling that you get when there's someone else in the room like you can't hear them or see them but you just yes. you can you just you can feel you can feel it there's sense their presence there was just someone else in the room so I would, I, and this, it was probably the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me, um, before or since. Um, and it happened every night, every summer for about three or four years. And I'd go, I'd immediately get up and sort of run to my sister's room in the middle of the night and I'd sleep on her floor. And see, we didn't have Google back then. And it wasn't until much, much later that, um, you know, I read a bit more about it and I, 
uh, I talk to like a medical professional and it's, I still get them actually, but they're called hypnagogic hallucinations and they happen very, very intensely on the edge of sleep. I still get these things mm-hmm. because I know what they are. It's a little easier. It happens in times, yeah. times of stress. Um, and that's, but you can, but as far as I was concerned for many, many years before I found that out, it was a damn ghost. Like what else could it have mm-hmm. been? Um, and that was, it was, and it was, a, 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 you know, a phenomenon I couldn't explain. I couldn't explain that. I, I didn't know what it was or what it meant. But when I first read my first kind of gothic ghost story, which was The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs, I thought, mm-hmm. ah, this is where you put it. This is where you put that fear that comes in the night, the fear you're not supposed to feel in the daytime. You're not supposed to feel as an adult either, you know. There's, there's this sort of this conception that, like, Perhaps horror is slightly childlike that, you know, it, make, it makes us feel things that we're not supposed to feel as adults, that feelings we should be ashamed of, you know, we mm-hmm. should be afraid. And so I think that, that was, that was my kind of initial route to, route to horror. I'd forgotten all about it though, like that experience, I mean. But when I first started to write, which is my first novel, Raw Blood, that was what mm-hmm. came out. And I, I was as surprised as anyone. I was like, I didn't know I wanted to write this, but apparently I really do. It's, and it's such a lesson, isn't it, on how, Writing just kind of happens, sometimes just happens a little bit in the corner of your eye. You know, it's a, it's a, it's the subconscious comes into play so much. And sometimes you don't know what, what it is you're writing until maybe you finished it. Maybe not even for some years afterwards, you know, it's a very strange job. (laughs) Quite a refreshing sometimes to listen to writers speak about their way into a particular genre or a particular method of writing, or sometimes just debunking the the idea that there is a method. Uh Yeah, yeah. we just don't know what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) All the chilling lies and just pretending that you do. I mean, even every time I write an article, and even as I'm writing my first book as well, I'm like, I'm going to pretend like I know what I'm doing. And let's hope they don't find out. Are you, are you writing your first no, your first novel now? Not novel, nonfiction. Nonfiction. Ooh, okay. I mean, that's that's absolutely my absolute go to for my favorite leisure reading. And it's it's weird as a writer because you have to choose your leisure reading quite carefully because there's a lot of reading for work, and also you've mm-hmm. got to be careful in that when I'm mid draft, I don't like to read anything at all because it feels. I'm scared I'll start writing that book instead, yes, especially if it's really good. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but but it, I, I, it's a real danger, isn't it? It, it? Because you, especially as writers, that's your first instinct mm. is to be a magpie. Is you pick up your job is like you pick up, you hoover up from all sorts of different sources, all of these ideas and phrases and tones and little incidents, and you can't mm. you can't help doing it. And if you start kind of inhaling someone else's style or register or, or, um, or intonation, then, which I think inevitably one might, I don't know if it's a real fear or not, but it's certainly, the, I think that's why people avoid it, don't you? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a big fan of people actually, both writers and, and filmmakers, directors, writer directors who kind of openly admit it to, it's like, yeah, this yeah. is, this is a collage of things that I've picked up, but it's filtered through a very particular personality and a very particular voice. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, the, you know, they say well known, well known, well trotted, trotted out phrase, there are no new stories. And th- there aren't, but that, that, that's never been the point, has it? It's about how one, it's about how you tell the story. And what it, it's you interacting with the story really and that's why yes. i think horror especially is so can be so meaningful because i think you make yourself incredibly vulnerable writing horror because you're what you're saying to the reader is i am afraid of this you're making your own fears plain you are uh, throwing the door open to like some 
quite dark parts of your psyche. Mm-hmm. And what you're tr- are sort of metaphorically asking the reader to do is take your hand and say, you know, if you're, if you're afraid of this too, then walk through it with me. And it's, I, in, in that sense, it's, it doesn't often get enough credit for this as a genre horror, but it's, it's essentially ba- based on empathy. Like you can't yes. have horror without empathy. Absolutely. And, and I'd even go, I'd even go further than that. Not only I think it's the most empathetic genre, but it's also, um, both the audiences also and the whole way that we yeah. interact with horror, um, is based around feeling for the characters. We want them to survive. Right. We want yes. them to get through something and to get out of the room or get out of the basement or get out of the, the icebox um, and kind of, yes. you know, be um, not be in peril because we instantly feel connected to them, no matter what, who they are, even if they're the, the even sometimes if they're the antagonist of the book. I think that that's it. We can't care about their suffering unless we care about them first. Um, and yeah. it's, it's a really, it's a really strange, I think John Connolly once said, you know, it's really, um, it's the only genre which doesn't have a, an appealing, inviting word as its, as its, as its title. So romance, mm. who doesn't want to read that? That sounds great. Let's read romance. And like fantasy, yes, please. Sounds great. Let's read that. But horror, it's the only, it's the only genre which delves into un- the unpalatable feelings, you know, the feelings that, that we don't volunteer for necessarily. Um, mm. and that's it's it's a, it's a strange beast in that sense. And to bring it back to the last house, well, to really start talking about the last house on Needless sure. Street, I wanted to ask you. I'm always very curious about how a project, how a book starts materializing. Is there was there a moment, a sentence, uh, a a scene in your in your head, a character? Was there something that came first, and that was the the inception yes. that yeah. then grew into the novel? <laughs> well, I I um, if anyone who's read it will know it grew far beyond this but I started out being really interested in the relationship between serial killers and their pets so um, Dennis Nilsson for instance had a dog which he was really into called Bleep um, mm-hmm. and you know after he was arrested the only thing he really cared about was Bleep um, Bleep I, I'm sad to say did did not meet a good ending but um, you know it was uh, who knows what that poor dog had seen but the thing is the dog loved him and he loved the dog and I was just so interested in this in this, it's almost another form of captivity, this, you know, this, this relationship of domesticity of an, you know, and I wondered what it would be like to put a voice on that. So I was thinking about the relationship between, um, Olivia, Olivia, the cat, and, um, and, uh, and, and Ted in that sense. And as I said, you know, nothing is this book as it seems, but, um, it seemed to me such an interesting thing because someone so devoid of any rational, of any emotional, um, affect, um, could, mm-hmm. could feel something strongly for, for, a, a, you know, an animal, for a creature. And, um, and that did seem to me quite a dark place to explore. It very quickly grew beyond that. Um, and I just, I had such fun trying to work out, how does a cat talk? <laughs> like, what do they sound like? What do they want? Famously, no one seems to know. Um, so, <laughs> as any cat owner will tell you, I, um, I, and I, I thought about it and tried lots and lots of things until, and, and then the, the moment I realized I had it was when I realized that what a cat would most like to do is, um, sit and, uh, watch a TV show of itself describing different kinds of naps. That's what a cat would like to do. It's, that would be its favorite thing. So <laughs> as soon as I had that, I was like, Olivia just walked in as cats tend to do, you know, uninvited. 
I I love that. I would watch that as a, yes. as a reluctant cat lady. My cat is sleeping behind me in the room and I'm just praying oh. that he's not going to wake up and interrupt, which he always does. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that is certainly kind of one of the most um, definitely standout aspects of the book is the one where... I think I, I think it might be the second chapter. I might be wrong. Yeah, where the minute I saw that become the point of view of a cat, it's like I am in. I'm never. I'm never going away. I'm going to stay here until this is done. <laughs> it's a real litmus test because some for some people that's the point where they're like, no, no more. Do not want like this book. Is, who cares? <laughs> Those so, people are uh, incorrect. <laughs> Thank you. I think so. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about Olivia, not just because of my own um, cat ladiness, but because I think that Olivia as a, as a character in herself is adds that edge of, of humor to the book, which is not yeah. something that we can often expect in a tale that um, deals with a serial killer or a serial yeah. killer-esque type narrative yeah. with abducted children, with tinges of the supernatural. So kind of how did you balance well, that 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 yeah. humor of a cat speaking well i've never written anything like this before all of my other all of my other narrators are i, I would say quite uh you know they're first of all human and <laughs> quite intense um because that you know i wrote much more i think it's much more straight down the line gothic novels before this i think this is much more of a sort of a mad fantasia of gothicness but um I, I increasingly found that um, Olivia becomes the moral, I didn't expect this at all, she becomes the moral centre of the book in a way. And she performs, I think, the, 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 same, the same act for the reader as she does for Ted, which is providing some much-needed comfort. You know, in a way, you can trust Olivia, in a way that you can't mm -hmm. perhaps trust other people. Um, and I, <laughs> I realized this very slowly. And I just thought, God, what have I done? I've written a book about a fucking cat that solves a crime. But, um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I just, I would I, love that. <laughs> it's true. And believe me, selling it was interesting. But I, <laughs> it, you know, I, I just, I thought, you know, I've got to stick to my guns here because I know. And there was lots of responses from people who were like, don't, I don't like an, I don't like animal narrators. I don't see how to sell this because if there's a cat in it, it's cozy, but it's not cozy because it's so, and I just, we had every kind of response, every kind of, kind of, um, you know, a, a reservation that could possibly be thought of was expressed. Um, and I, I, I just, I, and I remember saying to my agent, like, is this, have I written an unsellable book? And she went, oh, I don't think so. She's very proper, Jenny. She's like, oh, I don't think so. And I was like, well, I mean, what, what, you know, what, what do we do? And she said, well, if we don't sell it, we don't sell it, write something else. You know, she, she was like, I don't want to, I don't want to change it is basically it. Cause we had the mm -hmm. option, I think, of making Olivia into, I don't know, I suppose the same function could have been performed by sort of, a, you know, a, a kind of a human character who lived in the house with them. But I, I didn't want to do that. I, it was, it seemed mm -hmm. to me very important and very moving that Olivia remained exactly who she was. Um, and yes, uh, I, so I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad we stuck to our guns, to be honest. Me too. And and I kind of want to ask you. You mentioned a little bit the reactions or the reservations, and yeah, uh, I'm fascinated by. But what sort of reservation? What sort of reactions did you have uh, about, oh God, about so this particular <laughs> angle? We used to, so I used to have this thing that I used to call to my to my partner Rejection Monday, which is when, when my agent would send me all the rejections we'd received the previous week. There were a lot of Rejection Mondays, let me tell you. And 
I just grew, I, it was very dispiriting because no, there was no one consent, there was no consensus on what people didn't like about it. Everybody had a different, had a different reason why they wouldn't take it. Um, Olivia was usually a sticking point, but there were lots of other reasons. Like, um, again, that, that one of where does, where does it go on the shelf? What genre is it? Who knows? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's too difficult to, um, to ask the reader to put to to go with you on the, some of the reveals that happen towards the end uh or that they they don't feel that this is appropriate material for a novel because it it deals with some aspects of mental health now and i i just I, I, look everybody's entitled to their opinion i certainly don't i'm not going to make someone it's, it's a good thing if people don't like the book they shouldn't buy the book that's definitely that's definitely true so you know absolutely they should not that what happened was the right order of things mm-hmm. um but I, it, it, usually when something's wrong with a book, you know about it. You know, you know mm-hmm. about it because at least three people can agree what's wrong with it. And nobody was able, every single objection that was presented was different. And nothing, um, the thing that changed that discourse was, and I don't, I don't even know what to say about this still. It's still my mind, my mind boggles just thinking of it was mm-hmm. when mm, Stephen King tweeted about it. And that was, probably the biggest day of my life um because it changed it changed everything you know and and it was it it went from being a a weird curio a strange oddity of a book that um everybody was a little bit on the fence about to being something that you know it, it had it had legitimacy and I certainly did not expect that. I had, I mean, the idea that Stephen King knows my name, I mean, he may have forgotten it already, but, and sh- so should he. But like, the idea that he knows my name is just absolutely bonkers. And I, 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 I never met him. I don't know him. It's just, it, it's, it was a bolt from the blue. And I found it extremely, uh, extremely powerful. And I, you know, if I ever get a chance to thank him, I, I would, I would like to because it, it, you know, he, he does have a, and he didn't have to do that and go out and, you know, find a weird, odd little book to, you know, that, that he likes. He must read very widely. And I think that, you know, there's, there's such a, such a value, an immense value and morality in putting the ladder back down like that. So mm-hmm. I was, I mean, on every level, I was just blown away by that. And also just so, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of Stephen King as well. And yeah. he's, he's quite famous, I think, for helping, um, yeah. new authors as well. I think one of the most famous things is his, like, um, allowing people to adapt his stories or his books for one dollar. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes, which I think is just the most amazing, um, initiative. But it, so he's, it was yeah. completely organic and out of well, the blue. He, he tweet, he, there was some, there was, I mean, he asked, he asked for the book, but he asked for the book on mm. Twitter. <laughs> like, getting a book to Stephen King is actually surprisingly difficult. Well, not surprisingly <laughs> at all. It's actually very, very predictably very difficult. But, um, you know, we had to, we had to figure out. Uh, and then, you know, so we got him the book. We had no idea, you know, what he'd think of it. And, and then months and months passed. And then he tweeted that he'd read it and he'd enjoyed it. And I so some saying, good can come from Twitter after all. I never, um, that's, that's <laughs> the terrible thing, isn't it? I can never be rude about social media again. <laughs> I just can't because it's it's changed my life. So yeah, look, I mean, I I yeah, I, I was I was it was I was incredibly grateful for that. But and you know, as and have full of respect as well, as you say, like 
what a what a what a wonderful way to engage and keep engaged with with mm. the, with with you know like the genre and 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 with everyone by by you know supporting certainly things which you know I could I mean I, I couldn't get arrested for, for a lot of 2019 but like by by publishers um so it was very it was very meaningful to me in a lot of ways and I try not to go on about it but well I do don't I um who wouldn't I mean, I mean who wouldn't who wouldn't who wouldn't, who wouldn't? I was like when I, when I got the tweet his his blurb I was like I'm gonna have that tattooed on my face you know? honestly who could blame you who could blame you know, I've, right? if Stephen King ever knew my name or read anything I'd written I'd 100% tattoo this on me like I, I will I will I will put this on the record I will yeah, I mean, your head explodes. I just, yeah, that, so that was that was that was a day, and it sort of changed. It changed the fortune of the book. Mm. And and kind of going back to the, to the story itself, one of the things that really struck me um, about the novel is how it sort of almost shifts midstream for me, at least. And it kind of yes. played around with expectations quite yes. a lot. The moment I thought it, I knew what it was, it shifted. The moment I thought I kind of got a grasp on it again, it shifted again. So, you know, it plays around with so many expectations around abduction narratives and serial killer narratives and like a little bit of supernatural. And I was wondering kind of how, how did you manage to pack all of that in? I, I don't think the reveals are twists per se. As we were saying earlier, I think they are reveals, and I, I think they're earned. I, I n- my, I'm not interested in pulling the rug out from under the reader at all. What I want is there to be this slow and, and immense wonder and pleasure, the same wonder and pleasure I felt during my research when I was learning about um, some of the thing, some of the conditions and some of the things described in this book. I wanted I wanted to f- people to feel almost the same sense of awe that I felt about how. How amazing people are, really, and and what they can mm-hmm. what they can put up with, and how versatile and plastic the human mind can be. I I thought it was I, I thought it was wonderful, and I, I I mainly it was really important to me to try and do justice to um, people whose lives have really been affected by these things, and that was that I hope I did my job. I did I I talked to people who were affected by it. My main thing was like, you know, it's difficult because. It's a tough book full of tough subjects. And, um, you know, some of the people who have been through what some of the things that are featured in the book are fragile people because mm-hmm. that's in, that's built into it. That's, that's what it is. So I was really keen that I didn't just cannibalize their experience in order to build mm-hmm. some kind of, um, you know, build like, tell some kind of tangential story. I wanted, I wanted to actually, I wanted to, to, I wanted, really wanted to reverse a particular trope, which people read, they will, they will, they will understand exactly what that is. And I wanted to use, as you say, the reader's expectations to do that. But the the response from horror, from horror fans and also from readers of other genres as well has been that people, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not breaking the covenant with the reader. Because I think that's what genre is, really, isn't it? It's an agreement with the reader that this is the world we live in, um, and you're not supposed to break those rules because that's that's not fair, actually. And it's kind of a dick move, really, narratively mm-hmm. speaking. So I really wanted it to not be that. Um, I just I felt so strongly. I, like this book burned in me. It really did. I I was just possessed by it, and um, I I couldn't stop writing it. And once I'd had, once I'd broken open the, you know, the, 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 the full uh, architecture of the story, it was, 
I, I just, it, I wrote faster than I've ever done. My first book took me seven years. My second book took me two and a half years. This took me like 11 months, I think. I've never, ever wow. written so fast or so, or so frantically or it, like, like I was just driven. And, it, and that's because the story just felt so urgent to me. And, I, you know, I, I, I really, I, I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't, I'll never write a book like this again because I don't think there is anything like this. <laughs> Any, you know, you can't, there's nothing, um, there's nothing that you could write quite like this. But I think that I'm really, really glad I've done this. I feel like I've done something. I've I, I pushed myself like emotionally, technically, emotionally, mm -hmm. and in terms of, um, just ab my ability, but also in terms of what, uh, you know, look, looking into the darkness a little bit. I, I, I felt mm -hmm. like I, I went further with this book than I've ever done before. And I really, I'm really, I'm really glad I did. I, um, so yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I feel, I feel a bit embarrassed now. No, no, don't be. That's, that's really wonderful to hear because that kind of sense of urgency, uh, you, I felt for sure as a reader as well, the sense of I can't, I can't stop until yeah. and it's not just narrative curiosity. It's I need to know they're okay. I need to know what happened yeah, 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 to yeah, yeah, yeah. Lulu. Oh, and good. and I kind of wanted to across. ask you. Yeah. And actually, it's, it's really interesting to, to hear that from you, you know, this idea of being possessed by them. And I wanted to ask you in the writing process, how did you shift between all of these voices? Like, how was that for you? Well, I thought about. I, I tried various ways of doing it. So I tried. I tried um, writing each each narrative out, and then seeing if I could break it up. That didn't work. It didn't work. The only way it worked, and it was completely fucking maddening and frustrating as a structure, was to write each part in place and then connect all the different strands and threads and clues in a through line. So in each in each section, there was about seventeen thousand things to worry about about continuity about character about placement of stuff and you know and under pace and things like that i mean there always is with a book anyway each one is each one's a nightmare in their own particular way but um in this one i it was it was so it was, it was like it was like driving a 16 pair of horses that are through like a very crowded street just keeping control of it felt it felt dangerous to write you know it felt like i was constantly on the knife edge of falling of falling off um but I, but that was the only way to do it. So I, I tried doing it. I tried doing like, you know, a sort of murder board, like a serial killer murder board with bits of yarn connecting and pictures and stuff like that. And I was, it just didn't work. The only way, as it turned out to do it was to be able to hold it in my head and, and make sure that I knew it so well that, that I was able to, um, keep every single little narrative or character strand in my head and reframe the arc so that I was sort of moving the building blocks as it were didn't take any any sort of rereading I'd just be able to move something from one place to another because I knew it so well um mm -hmm. and it was very obsessive it was it was completely it it, it possessed my life and you know, I had no idea if it was kind of was going to work or not well, I mean but I think my, I think that's common in, with most books Although this, this felt more, it felt more dangerous, as I said, than, 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 than the, than, uh, than I, than I've felt in the past, you know. And, and I wanted to, to bring back the, to something you mentioned before. And oh, yeah. on the back of this book, I've, I've bought your previous novels and I'm kind of oh. in the process. I've started Lil Eve oh. and I'm going to get to Rob Ladd next. So I'm kind of doing him in reverse chronological order. <laughs> 
back. Oh, that's nice. Oh, God, thank you so much. That's wonderful. I've got such affection for Little Eve because it was my, it was quite, it's my least read book. And it, it, it just, I don't know what happened with it. So it completely flopped. Um, I think it, the first year it sold minus copies. I don't know how that's possible. How? But apparently, <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. But it did. So, and, and it was, it was just like, oh God, what a failure. And then, then later, of course, it won the Shirley Jackson Award, which yeah. sort of went, it was very unexpected because it's not even published in the US at all. So to win this big American prize was quite, quite strange. Um, Nightfire, who are publishing Needless Street in the States in September, mm-hmm. are also going to publish Lift Leave, which I'm just, you know, I'm so grateful for. I'm so grateful that my, my, that my sort of orphaned novel gets a second chance. I really, I felt very strongly about it because it was my, so it was my second book. And I think what they say mm-hmm. about second books being difficult is absolutely true. Um, it's a nightmare because if you can do it, if you can <laughs> do it once, then, you know, maybe you're, you're a fluke. But if you can do it twice, mm-hmm. then maybe you're a writer. Although what you don't know at that point is that every single book, you, you know, you'll finish it thinking, well, I know how to write now. And then you'll get to the next one. You're like, no, 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 no I don't. No, no. no. <laughs> and every writer I say this to is like, uh-huh. <laughs> so but the second one, it was, it was difficult. Um, and it's, so it, the fact that it, it, it eventually shone through and got this sort of second lease of life is almost like, mm. it almost, it makes me feel very grateful. And again, a little kind of, you know, a little emotional because, um, yeah, I don't know, books, books tend to be like, they, I don't know, when you look at the, it's a bit like, your old books are a bit like, um, looking at a photograph of you as a child. There's this sort of like sentimental, quite just like, ah, oh, you know, but obviously you've, moved like it's been years it was five years ago i wrote with leave you know mm. but, and it's almost like a little snapshot of your mind at that time you know it's 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 a picture of your concerns and hopes and dreams although only you can see that i don't know if the reader will get of that course. at all no of course because um i was about to say you know i've got your your books in front of me it's like all i see are are the stories and obviously yeah. now kind of talking to you i i, t- I can understand a bit more about the process behind them but if I can see from your point of view that you'll see everything that you all the drafts all all the rejections all the conversations with your agents with publishers with editors like all of the research all the things that you're holding in your head are kind of in those in those books in each one of them yeah and also like personal stuff as well like stuff that was going on in your Mm. in your in your life you know just some difficult things happened of course like life's not always easy you always you always remember like what the, the, the significant big landmark events that happened while you were writing a particular book mm. because they'll, you know, that will shake you up. And, um, yeah, it was, it, it's, Little Eve is, I'm so glad you, sorry, the, the short version of the story is, I'm so glad you read Little Eve. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really excited. Uh, I've just started it a few days, uh, a few days ago, yesterday, actually. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask you because, yeah. uh, I haven't read Rob Ladd yet, but do know that reading a little bit about your work and other interviews with you, that your first novels are very firmly kind of rooted in, in the Gothic and Needless yeah. Street really isn't. So I was wondering, um, kind of, was it a deliberate choice to not want to do a third gothic novel? Or kind I of think Needless Street's very gothic. gothic. It's just not. It's just not historical gothic. So mm-hmm. I think it's very gothic. So for me, it has all of those gothic concerns of like constraint, imprisonment, um, focus on structures and buildings, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and um, particularly first person narratives. Like the gothic is the gothic is like the found footage. Uh, movie. <laughs> I love that. 
but it's true it is it's like it's it, it it's always presenting itself as evidence from dracula onwards you know you have diary format it, what it, mm. the gothic is always going this is true this is true and what that comes from i think i believe is from a sort of it's a it's a perfect it's almost like a secular version of the catholic tradition of witnessing but you need to witness and you need testimony for canonization for instance or for the mm-hmm. or for the um official recognition of miracles and so it's taking mm-hmm. it's taking its structure of the the bits of evidence required um from this kind of like canonical um, and this church um process but actually what it's doing is rather well rather profane so i i think it's just such a fascinating genre but yes i mean i i i like anything anything to me when i see anything that's like bits of recordings or first person narrative stitched together to form a kaleidoscope of points of view i'm always like gothic 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 um so for me for me i think need street is very gothic um and but what it's not is historical gothic. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely, I think, you know, as, as someone who, I think if, when you're on your first time out, or maybe even your second time out, maybe there's a kind of safety in, um, uh, maybe there's a kind of safety in taking refuge in something that connects itself so ostensibly with historical and, and with previous narratives. Mm-hmm. Because people think of the, if you're connecting yourself with like the original Gothic novels, then it's, you know, it lends you a sort of legitimacy. Um, and I think although subconsciously that may have been something, you know, I was, you know, I, I wasn't, I, 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 I felt I wasn't qualified to take it, take it, take it out on my own and make something new with it. Whereas with Needle Street, I think that's that's what I hope to have done, and what I what I what I felt was the sort of the, the mad anarchic spirit of it was was that I just went well, fuck it, I'm just to do what I want really, and like and and make something out of this you know mm-hmm. this genre, which I think is such a generously shaped genre that has so much to express and say, um, even you know even today, to, to to use those conventions and those techniques to tell a story that that that, that is that isn't allied to you know the canon of gothic literature so i i think that that it was a big change it was a big leap in the dark for sure Mm -hmm. thank thank you so much for that i will never ever forget the gothic as the found footage of of horror literature (laughs) i'm gonna have that engraved (laughs) but um i'm very aware that we've been tiptoeing around the the plot and some of the the reveals of the book and much as i do with with our film discussions i'm gonna do a spoiler warning for the listeners so from this point onwards if anyone hasn't read that last house on needless street do uh absolutely not regret it and if at any point you don't want to hear the first person narrative of a cat i i can't help you because there is something that is missing in your life that's everybody needs that I would watch that show on Netflix or anywhere else immediately. But from this point on, we're, we're going to be touching about things that happen in a book um, that if you haven't read it, you might want to avoid listening from here on out. But now in this spoilerific uh, territory, I wanted to ask you about the, the we've spoken about the choice of kind of um, first person narration and the points of view of different characters. But one of the characters, one of the most monstrous characters in the book for me that doesn't get her own point of view is Ted's mother. We see her only through his recollection and yes. I and, and they're kind of warped and and sort of untrustworthy in some regard um and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that choice. Well, I think 
yeah. I think all the all the narratives apart well, apart from D's are rooted in the present, really. So they're they're all kind of they're they're all flashbacks in terms of Ted remembering mm-hmm. instead of being um or, or you know as as he does because a, a big device as you know in the novel is is that he records some of his memories so he does doesn't want to lose because he doesn't want to lose them because he has gaps of time where mm-hmm. he forgets things so um it's all and in 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 that sense it, again <laughs> it is that gothic thing of like having you grounded in one in one temporal place and having everything else having everything else sort of like um the sub narratives that feed in from different times and places i think ted's mother was um well she's without giving too much away i think she's uh one of the best one of the, the most terrifying people i've ever created just in terms of what she what she seems capable of um how she seems capable of treating her child and mm-hmm. i I don't know. She was a bit like Olivia in a sense. And I think that maybe Olivia is the anti-mommy. <laughs> um, because she walked in at almost like the, 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 almost the same day that I, I cracked what Olivia was. I cracked what mommy was as well. Mm. And I think they're almost two sides of the same coin, really. I mean, even, even to the extent that now I realize, see, you only realize what you write afterwards. It's crazy. <laughs> even to the extent that she sort of, she she takes Olivia away from him in that scene where she where she buys him the key ring and then she mm-hmm. takes it away. There's a sort of sense of her withdrawing the Olivia-ness of her character from him and separating them out, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so Olivia becomes her own entity. I don't know. It was um I found I wanted there to be I, w- I wanted there to be an explanation for how had Ted. Uh, Whitehead is how he is, um, but not just uh, a simplistic one. And mm-hmm. I also thought that you had to have a sense of her being. Uh, the, what weirdly is, um, she, you know, weirdly unlocked her as well was this sort of like weird Breton culture that I was reading about. Mm-hmm. You know, where where you've got these almost you've got these kind of paganistic uh, traditions still married to Catholic, very kind of deeply Catholic practices. Mm-hmm. It really gripped me. I just thought, God, well, how, what an interesting set. You're the first person who's asked me that, about that, actually. That's great. I'm really excited. Oh, my <laughs> I'm God. Yeah. through this answer. Great. <laughs> um, Good. Excellent. <laughs> I, I, I was really gripped by, by, by that, those origins because I think that's, that's just such a, I, mean, I, I do not mean to imply that all Breton culture is like mommy. I really don't. But I, I've never seen that. I've never seen that strangeness reflected on the page really in a, in a, in any of the books I've read. There may well be some. So please forgive me if I'm, I'm, I'm overstepping, but, um, I, I, I just thought, God, what a, what a gift really. These, this kind of pantheistic, uh, kind of like set of beliefs you know embedded in this really grim catholic kind of death-centered culture like that there's a part where she where mommy describes um how the children would always play in the graveyard because there's nowhere else to play mm-hmm. i just thought that's pretty much the image of the book isn't it is children playing in a graveyard yeah and it's and it's yeah. through those those hints as well of the of the of her of her upbringing and those 
that flirting with paganism as well then yeah for for a moment when i was reading the book i was convinced that it would go veer down the supernatural route and there's yes there's good. a little, I'm glad. There's a little yes. bit of teasing of the supernatural <laughs> and and then it wasn't and i almost kind of wanted it to be i wanted it to be real um and yeah. i was kind of wondering kind of how could you talk a little bit about those those rituals and that those um those folk stories or kind of religious melts that inspired or imbued that supernatural vibe that that kind of goes through the book up until a certain point when it's very clear that it isn't well i i took some liberties with the onku the onku is not is actually just a death um it's just actually a sort of a sort of death figure like a reaper figure um but i thought that olivia's conception of the onku would be a little bit more complicated because she's a cat cats are always Um, more complicated yeah, then they see things a bit differently. They see things for what they are. And there's this part that, and so what I, I, it's a bit naughty, but then I'm writing from the point of view of a cat. It's hardly like realism is my forte. Um, and, <laughs> and there's this part where I, that I was really, I remember thinking, oh, God, how chilling. And I don't know if, I don't know if anyone else found it so, but, I, but this idea that the uncle changes face all the time his faces were between a mosquito or a camel or a person or a, but when you die and you see the uncle the face he wears is your own mm-hmm. i thought god that's terrifying because there's something so yeah there's something so chilling about that that idea that at, you know, perhaps because at the moment of death all you have to look at is yourself i mean god how dreadful um but yeah. it's it's um and it that that fact that features quite heavily at one of the climactic moments in the book and mm-hmm. I just, I really enjoyed inventing mythology that I, like, it's a very, it's a very, very specific subgenre. Um, mythology invented to seem plausible that a cat would believe about Brettel mythology. <laughs> I mean, if there's not a Wikipedia page created for it already, someone should. I know. Yeah, take note, everyone. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> You're missing a trick. One of the things that, as I was thinking about the book, um, one of the things that then becomes really touching about it for me was that a lot of it is about coping mechanisms. Um, yes. Once you impeel the story, the intensity, the the mystery and the thrillingness and all the mythology and all the all the cat stuff as well, it becomes incredibly tender and sad. And and it's about how Dee copes with with her grief and with her guilt yeah. and yeah. even Lauren's point of view and the way that Ted obviously copes with his life and how he. Um, um, and with every situation that he encounters, and I yeah. wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about the. Um, we've talked a lot about empathy and and yeah. the care that you put into building these characters and the research and stuff. So I wanted to ask you about kind of that, like the research and the yeah. psychology of them. Yeah, I well. I mean, I always wanted this to be a story about survival, not about suffering, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, there is suffering in the book, but it was really important. I don't think that's a spoiler. It's it's about it's about people finding light in the darkest places when you shouldn't even be able to survive, mm-hmm. let alone thrive. And I was really keen that it be that um, as opposed to a kind of, I don't know, just slightly voyeuristic view on 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 cruelty um and i I found that really really important um i mean it yeah it's it's difficult it it was a dark place to spend my days (laughs) actually um like at the end of the day i'd have to go go and look at something nice Mm -hmm. you know 
like uh so I, I, as i said before like it was a, it tested me this process a lot yeah. um the research was really interesting um i um i went and i went and spoke with a couple of people who have this who have experience of this sort of this mm-hmm. sort of thing and i i found being in their company kind of um incredible first of all because the idea, you know there's this sort of there's certainly maybe an expectation in my in my mind that someone who'd been through so much might not want to share that with me why mm-hmm. should they you know why should they who the, who the fuck am i right and i found it incredibly moving how honest they were and how how re- how willing they were to open um their lives to me mm-hmm. um there's and i don't know if this is there was one thing that someone said to me which was just and not i don't think this gives too much away but they would mm-hmm. and I, I i i think i mentioned it in the afterword which is like I was like, what do you think people should know about this that they don't know? What do you think is the thing that people should take away from this? And they were like, we're always, you know, all of this is just to protect the child's mind. It's all to protect the child's mind. It's all to protect the child. And I think that there's a lot of discussion about how abuse is circular. And it is. Of course it is. Abuse often is visited, you know, generation to generation. That's how it travels. But sometimes it doesn't and uh, i think there's a really um there's a really important lesson or just not lesson sorry forget that forget i said lesson it's not a lesson there's a really important um thing which i i wanted to remember which is that sometimes you know the the people you know not everyone who is abused perpetuates perpetuates that cycle and i i thought that was really 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 important for Mm. this for this book sometimes there are people who find other very i mean i'm not saying it doesn't cost them but there's you know they find other ways through it and the mind is a genius at creating these other other pathways so i was i was really moved and awed by uh those by 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 what those people were 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 willing to tell me i mean Mm -hmm. um and also um in particular i've i've kept i've kept them updated on 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 where we are with the book um they're gonna (laughs) it's on between the covers next on monday on the on bbc2 and i like they're gonna watch (laughs) you know it's nice like we keep in touch and i my as i said before my main concern was i just i do not want ever to make anyone's life Mm -hmm. any more difficult than they already are um by by uh you know it's really important that they don't see their experience reproduced on a bookshelf without mm-hmm. any warning it's really important that you know i i sent them the afterword that i wrote so that they could see if their quotes were correct and see yeah. if i'd got their story right and i've sent them the book they don't feel ready to read it yet mm-hmm. um and that's okay yeah well they may never read it um they don't need to why they don't need to I just, I, you know, I was very, very immensely grateful to them for for sharing their world with me, and I was, and oh god, I'm moving myself now. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just, I, 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 when I emailed them the afterwards, mm. they said one of them wrote back saying um, that um, they were like, "You've captured my world and not sensationalized it." And I, I thought, fuck, you know, if I don't get, if 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 no one else likes this book then I've got that and I, I I feel I did my job so that was a huge thing for me yeah that's I, it sounds like they were incredibly generous uh but it sounds like you were um very yeah. 
appreciative and careful with that generosity as well throughout the whole process. Ha- ha- well, God, you have to be, don't you? You really have to be. I wanted, you know, I, there's no need for any, there's no need for anyone to push themselves beyond. And, you know, I think lockdown has been very difficult psychologically mm-hmm. for everyone. You imagine how difficult it, it, it is. And I think they talked a lot, they talked a little bit about this in their email, like, you know, there's sort of a, anyone who's got PTSD or anything like that, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the idea of this great alien, invisible predator that can strike you down at any time. Yeah. So triggering. And I, th- I think everybody, you know, everybody's had a terrible time, but I think some people have really, uh, I think it really was very hard. Yeah. So. And you mentioned a little bit earlier that there was, there was one trope that you wanted to reverse, if nothing else, in yes. the narrative. Is that what you were talking about? Yes, it is that thing. It is that exact thing. Is Yeah, that's it. To start rounding off this conversation, um, and it's it's slightly a, a big question, but it's it's an interesting one, I think, because as we started off this conversation talking about kind of empathy and, and loving horror yeah. and, and fears and that the whole genre, literary and, and cinematic being rooted in, in feeling for either the protagonists who are trying to run away from the monster or the monster itself. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think makes a good monster? Oh, well, I think what makes a good monster, like a really frightening monster, is a monster who doesn't go from naught to 60, in, as in from neutral to being a monster. The frightening thing about monsters is, 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 is that we see ourselves in them, you know, for me anyway, um, is that, you know, you can, it's an, Im- by imperceptible degrees, do you become a monster? Um, that's not something I detail in Needless Street necessarily, but the idea that there is enough humanity left in a monster to recognize that they are a monster, Mm. is kind of terrifying i think the, i think that progression of a to b to c and all the way to, and to monster so imperceptible each step i find that really frightening mm. because it's some it's something that you know uh, none n- none of us is is immune to in terms of you don't know if life if life throws you enough um enough uh en- enough suffering and enough I- enough cruelty and perhaps perhaps you know th- there is possible to be that flip as as i said earlier not everyone does flip mm-hmm. and and that's a really important thing to remember but the thing is no it's very difficult to predict it's a bit of a milgram experiment isn't it like it's impossible to predict how you're going to react under immense pressure i always think of those people who um during the bat the batman screening sh- shootings you know mm-hmm. there were some people who there's such amazing displays of heroism and people you know, throwing their bodies over, you know, children and pregnant women to protect them from bullets and uh, amazing. But you know what? Who's to say that one wouldn't be one of those people who just panics and runs? Who's to say? It's, it's almost impossible for you to know until you've been in that situation, how you'll react. And I, I like to think about, I like to think that there's, you know, that there is that sort of element of the unknown in, in how far we can ourselves be corrupted into monstrosity. Hmm. It's a, that's a really, really great reflection. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's, we can pretend to know exactly how we would react under extreme situations, but we can never know. We can never know what our initial reaction would be. No. I wanted to kind of um, finalize our conversation by asking you, what do you hope people take away from The Last House on Needless Street after they finished it? Ooh, I, well... My main hope is sort of along the lines of what I was saying earlier in that they feel that kind of awe that I felt. I think there's a, there was a window onto the world that was opened to me in particular 
during that, uh, during the research and the writing of it, that I, I had been previously really, I think probably quite ignorant about as, as most people are. I'd really like people to perhaps have a, a, a more, a more nuanced understanding of perhaps how these, you know, things, these, how suffering can affect the mind and also how, um, you know, vulnerable people survive and, 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 and also not only survive, but also can, can often thrive and have amazing lives. And I think that there's a, a demonization of certain kinds of mental illness, which I think is mm, not unhelpful, you know, um, a demonization of certain kind of disorders, which, uh, and which are, which are quite easy go-tos, I think, in horror. And I, I wonder if perhaps it's time to start rephrasing that. That sounds very sententious. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to sound pretentious. I just I really, you know, every time someone reads this book, it feels like they're, they're like looking into a very sort of exposed part of me. So I get a little, I get a little kind of like wordy, but I think it's an extraordinary thing that I'm writing about. And I hope that that becomes across. I think the story that I've, um, you know, that I've written is quite nuts. So if you make it through that, well done, everyone. <laughs> and I just, I really want, I really want people to take away a feeling of hope and hope. And I know it sounds strange out of such a dark book, but hope and, um, looking forward and, and a little bit of wonder at how strange the world is, you know? In that, I think that's that's not pretentious at all. That's a really wonderful takeaway from the book, and I certainly I certainly took that away um, after oh, after I finished the book, and I'm extremely pleased. And I'm definitely assuming that you're not allowed to talk about it, and it would be improper to ask. But I'm really pleased that it's been optioned and who it's been optioned by. As yes, well. no, we can say that. Don't oh, worry, yeah, no, it's all. No, it's, it's, all it's, yeah, it's been it's been in Deadline Hollywood. It's fine. Oh, yes, it's the imaginary of it. Yes. Congratulations! Yes. I mean, I, I oh, kind of. thank you so. I'm, I'm already dream casting it in my mind, and <laughs> I know you probably can't talk yeah. about that, but like, <laughs> no, you, I can't talk about that. No, absolutely not. I wouldn't dare ask, but um, but I'm also really looking forward to seeing it on the screen too. I don't know how they're going to do it. I asked them how they were going to do it, and when I really warmed to them, is they, when they said, "Well, we don't really know. Actually, it's quite difficult, isn't it?" And I was like, "Yes, it is." Like, <laughs> There were a couple of other options we had, and people were like, "Oh, we could do it like this, like this." And I was like, "I'm not sure. I believe you." You know, um, <laughs> no. There, we had we had wonderful wonderful options, and um, but you know, I, I quite respected their blunt honesty of like, mm -hmm. "We don't know how we'll do it. Not sure. Have to have a bit of a think about it." I love that. Sometimes, thought, sometimes, you know let's just call it for what it is. Sometimes we don't know what the hell yeah, we're yeah. doing, but sometimes, we'll kind of figure yeah. it out. And maybe we won't, but we probably will. <laughs> exactly yeah no that's really great Katrina yeah. thank you so much for for your time and and for your just like really really funny and disarming honesty as well and talking about and talking about this book which is really fucking dark but you make it sound really right? really funny I know <laughs> <laughs> oh I know well I've got to get my joy somewhere um, <laughs> thank you so much I'm, oh, I loved it I wish we had longer but that's again that's what I'm saying horror people the best people. The best. Always exactly. the best people. <laughs>